This is episode 118 of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's guest is the play-by-play voice of the Calgary Stampeders, Mark Steven. Mark and I talk about the CFL's week one recap, how the Stampeders performed, what's to look ahead in week two, and also some little quips about his time covering Calgary sports from university to professional. Sit back and enjoy today's episode. And first, a word from our sponsor. If you're like most people, you strive to eat healthy as much as you can, but it gets really difficult when life gets in the way. We get busy, we're running around doing lots of things, it's hard. Being able to eat healthy on the go is super important more than ever now, and that's why I'm here to tell you about G2G Protein Bars. They're the best protein bar for eating healthy on the go. It's made with all natural ingredients, they're fresh, it tastes like homemade, but it's even better. G2G Bars have 18 grams of protein and are gluten-free. With eight different flavors, there's so many different things that you can enjoy about the great tastes of G2G bars and what they have to offer. They're fresh, healthy, and delicious. Make sure to get yours at g2gbar.ca or at your local retailer in Canada or the U.S. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Sit back and enjoy stories and insight from sports icons from all over. Welcome to Huddle Up with Patias Bueno. Today's special guest, all the way from Calgary, Alberta, is the play-by-play voice of the Calgary Stampeders, Mark Steven. Mark, I'm very glad to talk with you today. Our favorite sport in the world has finally kicked off, and is football back in Canada or what? Yep, very exciting. Great start. A tough act to follow for the rest of the teams after opening night in Calgary. Just to recap what happened last night... An exciting back-and-forth affair. There was questions around both quarterbacks for the Alouettes and for the Stampeders based on last season's performance. However, the Stamps did get the win. Bo had to leave because of an injury. Adams was up and down. What did you see from the Stampeders in that game, and how do you assess their performance overall based on the expectations going in? Well, I thought they were good, not great. They were a little erratic, I would say, at times. Uh, they were very good in stretches of the last four or so minutes of the uh, first half. They really just kind of collectively went to sleep and didn't do a lot of good things. But they bounced back, and they hung right there and uh, slowed down the Alouettes in the second half. The Alouettes didn't do a lot, so the defense really stepped it up. So I would say that every area of the team took a turn being very good and uh, struggled a little bit at times, but it was enough to win. So uh, could they play better? Yes, but uh, in the end, they did what they were there to do, and that's to win the game. Jake Mayer came in after Bo Levi Mitchell left with a rolled ankle, and he played pretty well, getting them in field goal range to set up Paredes with what was basically an automatic field goal for him as he's been so consistent for the Stamps special teams. What do you make of the situation at quarterback going into next week's game against Hamilton? Well, I would say Bo Levi Mitchell is probably questionable to play because of that ankle injury. He had a walking boot on at practice today. They didn't do much at practice. Um, there's no bone issues. They've had an x-ray. He's going to get an MRI. The Alouette just kind of landed awkwardly on his foot when he had it planted. And uh, it's one of those things. So, uh, you know, we'll get more detail when they come back to the field on Monday. But uh, I would put him in the questionable category for one game anyway. I don't know how serious it is longer term. Probably not very. But uh, nonetheless, I would say he's questionable for the Hamilton game. One of the other elements of the game yesterday was on 
the other side of the football re- related to injury, and that was Jeshur Nantui stepping up for William Stanback, who was the leading rusher in the CFL in 2021. And Jeshur Antwi is a local product to Calgary. He played for the Dinos. He grew up in the city. And you're quite familiar with his work. And what did you uh, make of his performance yesterday in McMahon? Well, I thought it was outstanding for a guy, like you say, who was thrown in a very, very uh, unusual situation. He had to come just off the bench and make the best of it, and I thought he did. That one run was just amazing, 70 yards. Yes, he is a local guy. Uh, he, he stays here in the off season. In fact, he helps coach his alma mater in basketball at high school. So he's around town. You see him, and, uh, you know, he's certainly a very, very good back, i got to say, but clearly the best in the league is uh, – Stand back. Let's hope his injury isn't too, too serious. And the Philpott Twins, one of them making their debut yesterday for the Alouettes as a returner. Now, it's been a little bit of time since we've seen a true, true returner as a Canadian in the CFL. But nonetheless, they he was able to dip his toes in the water a little bit, so to say. Uh, what do you make of how the Philpots will be able to fit into each of the respective teams that they were drafted by and will be on this season? Well, first of all, I thought Tyson fitting in for Alford was really, really good yesterday for a guy who's playing his first game, and he is very, very young. He doesn't turn 22 until next month, so just think about that. He's jumping into that situation. I thought he played well and uh, played very confidently for a guy who's had uh, no pro experience whatsoever. Jalen Philpott's a little different situation. He uh, took the first two reps in the first day of rookie camp, and that's the last we saw of him. He's got a long way to catch up now. I mean, you know, he's getting better. He's getting closer. He's doing more work, but he's got some time to catch up to make sure he can fit back in with the Stampeders because he's lost over a month already. And especially when you consider the expectations of rookies that would have extra eligibility to go and return to youth sports, it's definitely not a very easy task to ask young players to step into roles that quickly. And especially when you consider in terms of Canadian football, most players that have the option to go back to school will usually take it to bolster their abilities and their reps before returning to the CFL when they don't have any chance to go to U sports. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Uh, you know, these guys though, were very, uh, highly thought of and very sought after by teams. That's why they went fifth and ninth overall. So, do I see, uh, you know, Jalen returning to the University of Calgary? I would say probably not, but you know what? If he's just not going to get any work with the Stampeders, and maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, I guess it's always an option, but they've proven an awful lot at the uh, U sports level that uh, maybe their time has come to move on. But I guess it always is possible, but it depends on his health and his recovery. Right now, he's uh, just looking to get back uh, on the field, getting closer, doing more, but he's uh, not ready for full practice just yet. Speaking of players that were taken through the U-Sports draft just last month, Trey Ford, just up the road in Edmonton, is one of the three quarterbacks for the Elks, as well as receiver from the Manitoba Bisons. Gavin Cobb has made his way up to northern Alberta, and those two were seen as highly touted prospects, especially with Ford having an outstanding season, being named as the Heck Crichton winner in his final year at Waterloo, and Gavin Cobb having himself Quite the campaign there, although a short one in Manitoba. What do you see with the potential for these two players for Edmonton, knowing that their rivalry with Calgary will only continue to grow as the Chris Jones era returns to northern Alberta? Well, I saw the Stampeders and the Elks last week. It was the last preseason game, so I admit things are 
a little different in terms of, uh, you know, who does what. But I thought he was really good trade for it. I thought he looked very confident for a guy with a zero professional experience. He looked calm. He was running, uh, you know, made a play or two that he might like back. But I thought he looked very good. Same thing with Cobb, but he left the game with an injury, so we didn't see as much of him as we would like. Uh, but we'll get to know these guys because the schedule this year has the Stamps and the Elks playing four times. They play a series coming up at the end of this month into July, and then the traditional Labor Day home and home. So we'll get a great picture of how both of them are doing. But I was really impressed with Ford for sure. The beginning of a season will always leave fans to speculation as to how they think things will turn out, and especially now with the continuous legalization of sports gambling, there's lots of people that look towards the odds that will determine which teams will finish in what position. Now, I know that it's a little bit early to be confident maybe in determining who's going to finish where, but judging by the number of changes that have happened within a a few organizations on both sides of the country, how would you predict the Western standings and the Eastern standings right now at the season's end? Okay. Well, right now, until somebody uh, finds a way to bump Winnipeg off of the top rung, I have to go with them. Then I think the Stampeders have the depth to be uh, number two. Uh, number three, Saskatchewan, and I think it'll be close between the Stampeders and uh, Saskatchewan. Uh, maybe Edmonton will, you know, bounce back and be fourth. I'm not sold on this BC quarterbacking picture. I'm sure they're going to be fine quarterbacks in time, but to have two guys with very limited experience, I'm not totally sure about that, so we'll wait and see. Uh, in the East, I think Toronto's got enough depth to become the top team. I see Hamilton and Montreal fighting for second and third. I really liked what I saw from Montreal last night, and ironically get Hamilton next, but I'll go with uh, Hamilton at least for now. Ottawa, while they were the most active team in the offseason, did a lot of work, brought in a lot of players. I'm not sure they could pull them all together. They'll certainly be better than they were last year, which is a low bar to jump over. But uh, I think they'll be better, but not good enough. And especially with how much their offense is going to lean on the performance of Jeremiah Masoli, without his leadership, there might be some shaky times in Ottawa. I know, having watched the preseason game they played in Montreal just over a week ago, you could see how much the offense struggled without him at the helm. Now, they did have a few electric plays from the backups, but I think that Montreal, at least as a team in better position, especially at the pivot position because of the fact that Harris also has a breadth of experience behind Vernon Adams. And this is kind of a make-or-break year for Vernon Adams, I think, unfortunately for him, because of the fact that he has bounced around a bit and... He needs to show that he is a very talented quarterback and that he can lead Montreal to an Eastern final, to a great cup appearance. Because without that, I'm not sure how much confidence Danny Machocha may have in him going forward if Montreal can't put it all together in the East this year. I think that's fair. You know, eventually you gotta, you gotta do it. You can't be talked about as the next great prospect. Uh, he's going to do this. He's got this potential. Well, eventually you've got to show that potential and put it to work. I'm not saying he can't, but I'm with you. I think this is an important year. He's got some great tools surrounding him. Now let's again stand back. Don't know the extent of his injury, but he'll be a huge help when he does play. And I think Eugene Lewis and Jake Weinke are just tremendous players. So he's got some weapons, and I think this is his time to shine for sure. I would love to know your opinion on where you would rank some of the positional players in the Stampeders. Having seen words floating around social media, I know that Danny Austin has been quite high on some of the receivers within the Stamps offense, and the CFL released their own top 50 list 
cross-reference as well with that of Three Down Nations. So where do you rank Kamar Jordan and the rest of the Stampeders receiving core? Because they do have Reggie Bagleton, who, although he didn't play in a lot of games last year, the meaningful ones, he was lights out in. So would you say that those two guys are in the top five receivers in the CFL? Or would you say that Kenny Lawler and other members of other receiving cores across the West are better receivers? Well, there are a lot of good receivers, and you named a bunch of them right there. You mentioned the TSN poll. I had Lawler at number two in the league, so that's just me. So I, I value him. We, I really, even before the game, like Jake Weinke from Montreal, and I also think that uh, Brian Burnham from BC is tremendous. Eugene Lewis is good. But Reggie Begleton, uh, yes, he came for a few games at the end of 21. But I hearken back to his 19th season when he had 100 catches. And uh, so I put those guys in the top five. Kamar Jordan just a little on the outside because health has been a challenge. If he stays healthy, though, he's got that tremendous reach and tremendous athleticism. I think those are the best uh, in the league. So I would say the Stampeders receiving core anchored by uh, Reggie Begleton and Kamar Jordan is right up there with the top ones in the league for sure. Now, who would you predict to be the leading receiver in the CFL this year in terms of yardage? I know that there's been some predictions floating around on different betting websites, but there's been a few names that have been murmured, especially, you know, Eugene Lewis yesterday was looking great. He had uh, a hurdle and a great sideline catch there for a chunk of 25. Who do you say right now at season's end will be the leading receiver in terms of yardage for the CFL? Well, you, uh, it's really hard to look past Lewis, wouldn't it? I think he's tremendous. Um, I would say him or Reggie Begleton. So uh, since Lewis is uh, more of an incumbent, I'll maybe say him. But I think Reggie Begleton will be close behind as well. Although, you know, he doesn't play the outside spot like uh, Lewis does. So he won't maybe get the, some of those big, big passes. But uh, probably Lewis, I would say right now, is the guy that's going to rack up the most yards. Yeah. I'd like to touch on... A little bit uh, on some of the early parts of your career, I know that you and Greg Peterson have been, as a pair, the longest tenure duo on CFL broadcasts in terms of working within teams. Now, Bob Irving had just retired last year. He put in 49 years of service with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. So I want to ask some questions around some of the history that you've been able to witness because I know sure. that the, the Stampeders have definitely – been more successful during your tenure than probably any other yeah. time in history, but uh, I am pretty lucky that I've seen a lot of good stuff for sure. Yeah, fire away, sure. I would like to know, in your opinion, what would you say is the most iconic Great Cup win in Stampeders history? Hmm. Well, there's eight. I wasn't around for one of them, so 1948. Um, most iconic. Well, I'm going to have to say. Uh, trying to think here, what would be? It's like kind of trying to pick your kids here. I mean, the most memorable would be 1998 with uh, Mark McLaughlin kicking the game-winning field goal, ironically in his hometown of Winnipeg. Uh, 2018 was extremely significant because the San Peters had lost the two prior Grey Cups in brutal fashion in both ways, so they probably needed that as much as any. So, I guess from an entertainment point of view, I guess you'd have to say 1998. Uh, just from a historical point of view, though, uh, I know it predates all of us, but going back to 1948, that team was undefeated. 
So that's never been done. It probably never will be done because the format has changed. So I guess those would be the three maybe that stand out, but it's, it's pretty hard to say that one is quote better than the other because you're, that's what you're there for. That's what you show up in camp for. That's what every team has been on the field the last month, uh, grinding it out, trying to get a gray cup and a chance to be in the gray cup. I mean, uh, you know, 2001 was completely unexpected. Uh, they knocked off Winnipeg and then 2008 uh, played Montreal in Montreal. Nobody paid a minute's attention to the Stampeders and guess who won the great cup. So, uh, they all, all have their pluses and minuses. There's been so many, uh, so many memories for sure to win those great cups. I was going to say, I think, I mean, just, I know I was only born in 96, so I wasn't able to witness as many of the Stamps wins prior to the early 2000s, but 2001, would you say that that's the biggest upset in Grey Cup history? I don't know how many more there are, maybe at least in the modern era, yeah. like post-1958. I, I think that's fair to say, yeah. There was a huge gap in the standings between the two teams. Uh, the Blue Bombers were way ahead. I think they had 14 wins. The Stampeders became just the second team to win uh, a Grey Cup with a sub-500 record. So I would say it was. Uh, I, uh, you know, the one thing about that year is uh, – the Stampeders beat Winnipeg on the final week of the season to get into the playoffs. And that kind of kickstarted them on a couple of fronts. The players tell me that not only did they get in the playoffs, that you have to win the Grey Cup, you have to get in the playoffs first. But the fact they beat Winnipeg in Winnipeg, maybe Winnipeg didn't have all of their guns going that day. They had nothing to play for, but just the psychological value of beating Winnipeg. So that was very exciting. They carried it on through the playoffs. But based on the regular season standings, yeah, I would have to say that was uh, – the biggest shocker in Great Cup history. And the San Peters, I think they've had probably more Great Cup wins in since 2000 probably than, you know, most teams within a span of 20 years. I know that the Bombers, whenever they win, it's been in bunches. Uh, the Lions also win, but more infrequently. Toronto win in bunches as well, but they also still hold the longest Great Cup drought in at least championship drought, not yep. drought of not winning because Saskatchewan holds that. Yep. But they have the longest championship drought in CFL history. So the Stamps, I know some people, when they ask me about the CFL here in Toronto that aren't as familiar with the game, they ask me, well, who's the most successful franchise? And I say, oh, you know, Calgary's kind of like the Patriots in the way that uh, maybe they don't win every year, but they've put up more mm-hmm. uh, above 500 teams, I think, in the last 20 years than any other club has for sure. Well, he nailed it. Yeah, that's just it. And uh, last year, the Stampeders finished third, played a playoff game in Regina. That was the first time since 2011 they'd gone on the road uh, for a playoff game. So just think about that, uh, you know, for a semifinal round playoff game anyway. Uh, they rarely, you know, they usually have a home playoff date. They're always in the playoffs. So, yeah, their record of success is pretty uh, unmatched. They last, uh, you know, missed the playoffs in uh, 2005. So that's a long time. They're consistently at or near the top. And, uh playing, uh, you know, 500 football or better. They were last under 500 in 2007. So it's been a pretty remarkable and consistent success. And I think that's maybe, it's not so much they've had great teams, although that's that's nice too. It's like you say, it's they've been consistently there with different people, different uh, uh, quarterbacks and different personnel, but the result is they're always uh, highly competitive. Now, obviously, this is more of a grand question that I don't know if it can really be answered in terms of sp- specific eras because they always make the debates different but how would you rank some of the coaches the Stampeders have had in terms of best coaches at least I would argue in the modern era of the CFL like 1958 and onwards because they've had John Huffnangle 
and they've had Wally Buono and Dave Dickinson have all been three tremendous head coaches. Where would you rank those guys in terms of the best coaches in CFL history, or at least within the history of any club? Well, I think you have to put Wally Buono at the top. I mean, given what he did, he's the the franchise leader in wins for the Stampeders and the BC Lions. Just think about that. To be, uh, you know, continuously employed as a head coach and around long enough and be successful enough to be the leader in two different categories like that. I, I think it's just remarkable. So he's number one, I'd have to say. Then after that, you can kind of, you know, go through Hugh Campbell. Uh, he was very good for, uh, very, really good for Edmonton. So he'd be right there as well. And then John Huffnagel, uh, Don Matthews, and some of those people would be uh, right uh, there as well. And Dave Dickinson, he's six years now into his career, but I think you'd be able to put his name in that conversation of the uh, elites in fairly short order. So those are the guys, and you go back, you know, Frank Clare and people like that. But as you say, in the uh, more courage era, Wally Bono's number one, uh, Hugh Campbell would be right there as well. And then uh, John Huffnagel and Don Matthews are probably the the next up in the uh, hierarchy. I know that when you talk about some of the coaches that were a part of the older era, Bud Grant is a name that yeah. has a lot of high praise in Winnipeg. And I know it is tough, especially people talk about in terms of football or basketball. Oh, this player is better than that player. Well, they played during my day and now they play, you know, who plays in the present. But I'd love to know what your thoughts are and where you, where Bud Grant fits in, ter- in terms of best coaches, players, or just figures in Canadian football. Yeah, I guess they didn't know how far back you wanted to go, so it wasn't, uh, you know, I know he's got a statue outside the stadium in Winnipeg, so he's highly thought of. I didn't know exactly how far back you wanted to go, but you'd have to put him right there. I mean, the Winnipeg dynasties of the late 50s and early 60s when they were constantly in the Grey Cup. So if you want to include him, I guess I'd put him sort of right there with John Huffnagel and uh, people like Hugh Campbell because they were right there. That was a very powerful uh, group as well during that era. You're right, Winnipeg is a funny team. When they're uh, successful, they are successful for a uh, you know sustained period of time, a few years, and then uh, they have a drought. But that's where I would go. I, I would put Bud Grant there since you want to go back. I mean, if you really want to go back, uh, Lou Heyman with the old Argos and uh, uh, Eagle Keys and people like that. So uh, fascinating to dig deep into the history of the CFL. I don't know. I've asked um, another former podcast guest of mine, when you look at a team like Saskatchewan, Rob Vanstone was telling me in depth about you know, splitting hairs between four great cups, Saskatchewan of one, how can you say one is more important than the other? They all hold so much significance. But Calgary is definitely in that same conversation when you consider that they were not really a successful team for 20-plus oh. years. Until Wally Buono showed up, they were they struggled. And I don't know if they also had financial troubles too, but I remember uh, a former coach of mine when I was at University of Calgary, J.T. Hay, talked about uh, Wally Buono's importance in terms of turning the franchise of the Stampeders around. Well, you're right about uh, the Stampeders. Yes, I, I think it's easy to get caught up that uh, they've been so stable and so successful of late. But let's add up the history of the team. They won that Great Cup I mentioned in 1948. They didn't win another one until 1971, so do the math there. Then after 1971, they didn't win another one until 1992. So you would have gone 44 years if you were a follower of the Calgary Stampeders and seen one Great Cup. Think about it. So that's... 
yeah, you're right. That that's that's defines the term drought. I haven't done the math, but I would say that you know, 44 years, one Grey Cup has got to be some kind of a record. Maybe only Saskatchewan could equal it. Since then, though, it's obviously been uh, completely different. But uh, that was a long time, and yes, they did have financial troubles. Uh, there was uh, the SOS campaign, Save Our Stamps, where they had to, you know, go to the community and uh, try to get everything they could. Uh, to pull the team together and uh, it was a community owned team at that time we should point out so that's uh, where they needed it there is a really famous picture that's uh, still around Richie Hall who is now the much revered defensive coordinator of Winnipeg but when he played here uh, they were asking the team for some you know breaks and concessions from City Hall in Calgary the council didn't give it there's a picture of him on the front page with tears streaking down his face that he was so upset that the Stampeders might go under. And, yes, that was a possibility the team might go under at that time. But uh, it didn't, and here we are. But, yes, it, it stands in such stark contrast to how successful the team is now compared to uh, what it was for uh, for much of its history, to be brutally honest about it. And I know that even within the city of Calgary, people hail how important the Flames are and the fact that they've had success, at least winning a Stanley Cup being a lot harder than winning a great cup. But I feel like the Stampeders sometimes don't get as much love or as much consistent and a, a consistent injection of, of passion all year round as, as the Flames do. Obviously, hockey is more popular in Canada. But when you think about most the fan, the franchises with the most intense fans, the Stampeders would have to at least be in the top half, and I would argue that they don't trail that far behind Winnipeg and Saskatchewan. I know that Hamilton, you know, gets a lot of love because they've never had an NHL team, and Ottawa have died and come back to life multiple times. But where do you assess Calgary in terms of, as a, maybe there's a bit of a bias being from Calgary, but how do, how do you assess Calgary's popularity in terms of fan bases across the CFL? Well, I guess I would say this. I would say the Stampeders in Calgary have probably 22,000 bedrock fans that I would put up with uh, the other teams you mentioned, the Winnipeg and Saskatchewan. Difference is they probably have a more sort of what I call bedrock fans, and that's the difference. But I would say that Stampeder passion amongst that group is no different, really, than anyone else's. Maybe Saskatchewan, because as you say, there isn't the... uh, you know, distraction and the uh, alternate or alternative of an NHL franchise in the same city or the same market. So I guess you'd have to put everybody a little bit behind Saskatchewan, but I, I wouldn't say Calgary stands too far behind. No, there's a lot of people there. I know, uh, you know, obviously being under the same umbrella corporation as the Calgary Flames and the American Hockey League team, the Western Hockey League team and the National Lacrosse League team, it's a, you know, a bit of a competition for resources at times, but, uh, no, I think, uh, you know, just just have to accept reality. The National Hockey League is a bigger business and has a bigger footprint. But, uh, no, I would say that uh, Calgary has a very strong and sturdy core. And especially considering that their history goes back quite far. I know the, the Flames only came around after the expansion franchise in Atlanta had failed. And, I mean, Atlanta, thankfully, graced Canada with two different oh, expansion yeah. franchises being the Flames and the Jets. Do you... Are you also someone that loves watching hockey, or are you more of a strictly football person? Well, I, I spend more time on football, but I watch an awful lot of Flames games, too, and, and, and all NHL games. So, yeah, I certainly uh, uh, recognize what the Flames are. It was very exciting, the playoff run this year. They rarely make it out of the first round. So, uh, But, you know, it's fun to, to watch. But I, I would say clearly my focus is football, but not at the expense of 
hockey. Uh, I went to several games. I think it was five games this year just as a fan, and uh, so I enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, the Stampeders have deeper roots and longer-standing roots. I mean, the 1948 team is credited with turning the Grey Cup into a festival because it was Calgary's first time to go down there, and they had carloads of people on trains, uh, didn't fly much then, and went to Toronto and brought all the hoopla of, uh, you know, the traditional pancake breakfast, had the horse coming into the hotel, and it changed it from just being a game that was played Saturday afternoon at Varsity Stadium into kind of a celebration, which cities now compete for. I mean, you know, teams line up, they want the Grey Cup because it means big business for the team and their city. In your opinion, outside of Grey Cups that Calgary have won, what would you say is the most exciting or memorable Grey Cup in your lifetime? Well, I guess I'd have to say being in Regina in 13. That was, uh, you know, home city, that franchise, that fan base getting to celebrate a Grey Cup right there. I mean, there have been others, and, uh, you know, Toronto beat to the Stampeders in Toronto, and BC won. But I guess the, the Saskatchewan uh, was probably the best one because of just the crazy passion uh, uh, right there in uh, old Taylor Field that the Rough Riders did it. So I, I, this has been a lot of good ones. I've been privileged to see a lot of really good stuff, but that, that's the one that probably stands a little bit above outside of Stampeder-themed Grey Cups because of just what it meant to the city of Regina. And you touched on it earlier. That's only the fourth time they've ever won the Grey Cup, and uh, to do it in home, and that's one thing that I, I hope I'm around long enough to see because uh, Calgary, Winnipeg, and Ottawa have never even played in a home Grey Cup. Edmonton has, but they lost it. So uh, I just can't imagine the excitement that would surround a home Grey Cup win. And especially when you consider that Tom Hanks and Martin Short also appeared at the game in 2013, those would also have to be some added celebrity appearance bonuses. Yeah, for sure. And the ceremony with the Grey Cup coming in is always fantastic. So the Grey Cup, you know, there's always uh, stories and controversy in season with the CFL, but somehow the Grey Cup week always uh, manages to salvage something from the CFL and, and its season. So as someone who's been in Calgary for many years, have you also been a football fan in terms of at the, the amateur level with the Calgary Dinos as well and followed their team? Yeah, I go to the, as many Dinos games as I can. Uh, when the Stampeders are on, there's often a bit of a challenge getting to those games, Oaks. And when the Stamps are home, it usually means the Dinos are on the road and vice versa. Sometimes one will play Friday and somebody will play on a Saturday. So, yeah, no, I go. Uh, it'll be nice to go to more, but it just doesn't work out. I follow the team. It's fun to watch all of the various Dinos uh, in the CFL. I think everybody but Winnipeg has one dyno on their program. And I go from time to time to high school football as well and watch what they're doing. I mean, I don't think there's a better high school program in the country than Notre Dame High School in Calgary, which has two players on the Los Angeles Chargers right now. I don't think anybody else could claim that. So, you know, I spend as much time as I can around it. But clearly at the head of the mountain is the uh, Staff Peters and following them. But, no, I enjoy going out to the dinos. Went to their spring game this year, and it's a lot of fun watching them. You used to work with the Calgary Cannons that were a AAA baseball team that played out of Calgary from 1985 till 2002, I believe it was. Yep. And you worked doing play-by-play and also public relations. Now, I would love to know, because in my sports journalism program, one of the students, there's only three of us from outside of Ontario, and one of them is from Calgary, and he played uh, Dinos baseball, and he did a... He did a little a pitch. We were doing documentaries of what we would create for sports documentary, and he wanted to talk about how Alex Rodriguez had a cup of coffee in Calgary mm-hmm. for about a, I don't know, a month or so. Yeah, a month, and yeah. I, 
that might have been maybe close to the time that you were uh, working with the Cannons, or maybe it would have been a, maybe a bit outside of your time. Do you I, remember that? And what oh, yeah. do you remember from it? I wasn't doing the games that year. There was kind of some back and forth. I remember him. What I think it was best about him is he fit right in. He was 19 against guys. You know, a lot of them would have had some major league time. Guys were 26, 27, 28. He hardly looked out of place because while he's with the Cannons in 94, the prior year he's playing at Westminster Christian High School in Miami. And to go to AAA like that and just fit right in, you could tell there was something very special there. And he obviously went on to have a, a great career. But, yeah, it was fun watching him. And uh, Edgar Martinez, who's now in the Hall of Fame and perhaps – the most celebrated player that played here in baseball was Danny Tartable, who had a good major league career, but uh, was really a star here with his flamboyant. So it was an awful lot of fun, but sadly, uh, stadium issues, and uh, that seems to be a Calgary staple, the stadium issues and the weather just combined to uh, it just didn't work out. Do you think that if there was a, maybe a better opportunity for them to have a stadium that the Cannons could have lasted longer? Because I know that they played in the same league at one point in time as the, there was a team in Edmonton and also yep. the Winnipeg Gold Eyes. And I know the, the Gold Eyes have uh, probably been one of the most successful small baseball teams in all of Canada when you think about who plays across the country. But was there an opportunity if the stadium issue was fixed, do you think the Cannons could still be around today? That's a good question. Um, it certainly would have helped, that's for sure. I can tell you that because... The current stadium, it's, it's an eyesore now because they haven't changed it since the cannons left. Um, but the problem is with the weather. And what, what was starting to happen is, uh, you know, before, say, the long mega weekend, you know, there'd be a lot of days when it was just good enough to play, but not much more. It would be like, you know, first pitch would be you know, 9 or 10 degrees, a couple of clouds off there, a little bit of wind, so not awful, but... I think a lot of people just said, you know what, why am I going to sit here on the second Tuesday? I like the cannon. Second Tuesday in April, let me come back in a few weeks when the weather's a little better and uh, some the team's starting to take shape in that. So the attendance basically really collapsed in the first third of the season. I think that was one of the big things. And it's tough to make a goal that when a third of your season is, uh, you know, underperforming like that. So that was it. And the weather's not going to change. I mean, if anybody wants to build a dome, they, I think they would survive, but that's not going to happen. And uh, just, you know, internally in Calgary here, we have a horrendous problem building anything, uh, you know, facilities, uh, the hockey rink, McMahon badly needs replacing. The baseball stadium is going to fall down if they don't knock it down pretty soon. So uh, it's it's a bit of a challenge. But would they still be here? It's a good question. Um, I wish we had the opportunity to see it in person to find out. I think it would have been a struggle, though, um, for those reasons. Also, uh, there's a couple of things. Um, the dollar, the Canadian-American dollar ratio was really bad at, at the end of the Canada's. It was It's not great now, but it was way worse then. And uh, part of the other issue, the major leagues brought in uh, minimum standards. They upped the standards, you know, for uh, different stadiums. And Calgary fell short and uh, needed needed to put a lot of into the stadium. They did some, but uh, they just were short of what the major league uh, minimum is. I mean, now that you say that, it makes me wonder what has been the recipe for success in Winnipeg because I know that I also interviewed someone who now works down in Jacksonville as a senior reporter, but he was working as a play-by-play man for the Sioux Falls Canaries back in that time, and he remembers the teams in Calgary, Edmonton, and Winnipeg, and Winnipeg are the only city that has hung around. I mean, 
definitely equal weather, if anything, worse than Calgary yeah. and Edmonton. But um, I don't know. This, maybe there's something about the buzz in Winnipeg that has made it work. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess their their park has been okay. But, yeah, definitely stadium issues, I think, is really, really difficult to change, especially when you consider McMahon is the second oldest stadium in the CFL, the oh. oldest one that is actually owned by the franchise that plays in it, obviously, you know, because Montreal playing yep. at uh, Will Molson there. But um, what do you think will come of the issue with the stadium, the st- like both in Calgary, because they are looking to upgrade the Saddle Dome. McMahon has been there since, I think, 54, 56, really not changed a whole lot since then. Yep. What what will happen? Like, what if they don't renovate it, like, what will be the fate of, the, of those buildings? Oh, great question. Uh, the arena is certainly a very red hot political topic. I can tell you that. Um, you know, I don't want to get too deeply into the politics, but there's a lot of people who, uh, just don't want to have the city having anything to do with the hockey team and building what they call an event center. So they're having some meetings on that. McMahon Stadium is kind of an odd stadium. The Stampeders are there, but it's really on university land. The University of Calgary owns it, by extension, the province of Alberta. The city of Calgary has some representation on the board, and there's two at-large members. So what I'm trying to say is a lot of people have a stake in it, but nobody is really the lead horse in the whole thing. Uh, The university, uh, you know, they basically said that uh, they're going to do essential maintenance only, um, you know, personally, I think they could sell off a bunch of the land, make a bunch of money, uh, put it into either university programs or, you know, enhancing the stadium, and it wouldn't cost the, the university a nickel. So that's just the way I see it. But it is something that uh, there's just no real momentum for it. There's nobody that gets up there and pounds the table and says it's time to start building one, uh, a new stadium. You know, I think if you could drag Hamilton Stadium to Calgary, that'd be great. I think it's a good stadium, Hamilton. Perfect size, perfect situation, but there just is no momentum, no real uh, stand-up spokesperson to get a new uh, football stadium done. Hockey is in the political agree- arena right now. Where it goes, I don't have a clue because it, it is quite contentious. If you have the opportunity then, let's say you can make, wave a magic wand and poof, Mark Steven is the man that can change the fate of facilities for sports teams in Calgary. Where would you construct or how would you go about constructing a new stadium for the Stampeders? Well, I put it essentially where it is now. Uh, that used to be way out in the middle of nowhere uh, when Calgary was much smaller, but now it's considered almost inner city. It's right on the city's train line. It's near a couple of major roads. Uh, you know, parking is good, could be better, but it's pretty good. So I would find a way on that uh, acreage that it's on to build it there because I think that's the best spot for it. and People are just comfortable and familiar with it. I guess there are other locations they could look at. But I I'd, uh, think that that's a really good location uh, with a lot of the needed infrastructure around it. How they'd fit it into that, uh, you know, complex, I don't know, but uh, uh, that, that'd be a nice problem to have to figure out. But uh, I'd keep it where it is right now. I'd make it maybe 28,000 seats with some capacity, a berm or something to put 32, 33,000 in for a big game. Sometimes when Saskatchewan comes in, sometimes when Edmonton comes in, that's what I would do uh, if I had the resources and the uh, political authority to do so. And I know that there's a few teams, and I mean, speaking of stadiums and university and sharing facilities and the hash marks changing and all those sorts of interesting issues, there are two sides of the coin when you think about the Bisons, the, uh, the Dinos, as well as the Rams all share 
stadiums with a CFL team. Do you think that helps the programs or do you think it hurts them because of the absence of fans or what appears to be a lack of fans? I think you nailed it. Um, is uh, even when the dinos they, they don't draw as well as I personally think they should, considering the success of the program. But you know, even on days when they get five thousand there, that's okay. That's pretty good crowd. But it just gets swallowed up in McMahon Stadium. It's so vast. So I'm with you. Uh, you know, if there was a way to construct a smaller stadium on campus and then have McMahon Stadium for bigger events, you know, a, a revised and slightly downscaled McMahon Stadium, that would be ideal. But I'm with you. I think the fact the Stampeders, you know, they have the big facility. I can't speak to Regina, but I think they face the same issues or Winnipeg. Uh, I think it's a really difficult situation for the university team unless they fill the place with 20,000 people to, uh, you know, get their crowds noticed because the big stadium just swallows them up. Now, I've talked about this with some people who are also pundits across the CFL, you know, Dave Naylor and a few others. What are your thoughts on the Vanier Cup coming out west more often because i know people always say well in laval they draw a crowd and usually laval is in the vanier cup or the carabas or they're close by but there's never been a vanier cup in winnipeg uh i don't know if there's ever been one in regina i know saskatoon had one i think in 2004 or 5 i don't know if calgary has had one or last time edmonton so what are your thoughts on the vanier cup being played in western canada where would you host the game and what do you think would be the best position for it to draw the biggest crowd? Well, I'm, you know, it'd be interesting. Of course, you'd have to work around the, the potential conflicts with the CFL. And by the way, I'm not one of these people who thinks the Vanier and the Great Cup should be held up at the same time in the same city. I, I just don't think that works at all. That's me. You know, Edmonton's never had one either. Maybe, you know, their program is growing and building. So I don't have a problem. Uh, you know, if you can guarantee that the f- field, the facilities would be available, go for it. Yeah, I think Edmonton would be fine. Uh, Calgary, again, same thing. Uh, you just have to work around the uh, possibility of a CFL game, so that's very tough. Um, I'd like to see it. I'd, I'd like to see it go to Winnipeg. Why not? Uh, you know, they have had it in Vancouver where it worked, and uh, maybe there's some other venues. Uh, Saskatoon could have it as well. But uh, I'd like to see it, um, but you'd have to get it away from the CFL facilities. That'd be the only challenge. Have you ever traveled to any Vanier Cups in your lifetime before? Been to a couple. Um, the one in Toronto in 07 that Manitoba won, and 11 when the uh, – uh, game was played in Vancouver at the same time as the Grey Cup, and obviously I've watched a lot of them because the University of Calgary has played in a lot of them, but those are the two that I've uh, been actually in attendance at. Would you argue then that the one in 2011 is the greatest university football game that has ever been played as per Rod Black? I can see that. Yeah, it was a really good game, i got to say. No, no doubt about that. So uh, Rod wants to say it's the best. I'll, I'll agree with him. It certainly was a, a, a compelling, amazing game for sure. Well, Mark, we are getting towards the end of our time on today's episode, so I wanted to ask you a few quick wrap-up questions to have a little bit more fun before we go. Let's go. Fire away. What is the most iconic game that you remember from calling the St. Peters outside of the Great Cup? Most memorable, iconic game that you remember calling? Um, probably the... 14 West final in Calgary. That was a really good game, really well played. Uh, they just took off and ended up winning the Great Cup the next week. But that was that was probably the best uh, playoff game. There's been some good regular season games. That was probably the best uh, playoff game for sure. In your opinion, 
who are the top three quarterbacks in the CFL in the last century since 2000? Uh, since 2000, you would have to say Anthony Calville won. Uh, Bo Levi Mitchell is up there. And, uh, number three, just, there's been a lot of good ones, whether you put one right in the conversation there. I mean, probably Ricky Ray, that'd be my top three. Who do you think is the most underrated Sam Peter that you remember from the time that you started calling games to the present day? Guy that maybe didn't get the attention he deserved. Hmm. Uh, probably Kenyon Ramble, a receiver. He had a hundred catches one year, very fast, uh, very elusive. Uh, he was at the same time playing with Nick Lewis and Jermaine Copeland and, uh, uh probably got a little overshadowed there. So I, I'd probably lean, my first thought is to Kenyon Rambo, who, uh, played well, but maybe is never regarded as uh, one of the truly elite receivers. What would you say from all the games that you've called would be the one that was the most difficult to watch in terms of results for the Stampeders, whether it be uh, something that had happened poorly to one of their players or just unlucky game or something like that? Well, I tell you, the most, the hardest Grey Cup to watch, although I didn't do it, was 2017 in Ottawa when they lost to Toronto. Uh, I just still don't know how they did, but they did. The uh, most difficult uh, regular season game, yeah, boy, I'm just trying to think. There's a lot of them. Um, one that they lost in 2002, 51-48 to Winnipeg. It just seemed that the it just kept slipping through their hands the game. And now how do you score 48 and lose? And they did. So it was. Uh, that was a real frustrating game to watch. I mean, there's been other frustrating games too, but that's the one that was just uh, a little hard to wrap your head around. Uh, you scored 99 points uh, between the teams, and uh, somebody lost by three. What is the craziest play that you remember seeing as the voice of the San Peters? Craziest play? Well, it would have to be Nick Lewis, and I think it was 2010. He went down the sidelines and ran over some poor guy from Montreal, hurtled over another one, Mark Estell, I think his name is, and went to the end zone. And I think TSN replayed that endlessly for days on end. It was pretty spectacular. So Nick was quite a gifted player in terms of uh, making crazy plays. There was another one a couple of years ago, Juwan Breskison, a receiver, went way up. I have no idea how he went up and pulled the ball down with one hand. It was in the season opener against Montreal as well, coincidentally. So those would be two of the, the best plays, uh, you know, kind of memorable plays there. And my final question for you is, who was your favorite football player to watch when you grew up as a kid? Uh, growing up, uh, I guess probably Wayne Harris, just because he was such a talented linebacker, a little undersized, but ferocious, great tackler. And, uh, you know, he was a guy that was uh, easy to like. He's such a humble guy, but uh, he was probably the guy that uh, enjoyed watching as much as anybody. There were a lot of others growing up, but uh, he probably was the most dynamic, uh, at least for that era, got the most attention as one of the best ever. And I'm sure that, you know, he is, he will look down, down and be very proud of the continued work that his son has done with the Calgary yeah. Dinos and yeah, has very continued much so, yeah. to bring lots of success to Calgary and especially to the university program that's so near and dear to the city of Calgary. 
No question. Yeah, Wayne Harris is a junior, is a fabulous coach. He's made a great name in his own right. And, uh, you know, the Dinos slipped a bit last year, finishing under 500. That was a one-off. They'll be a, you know, you look at the CFL draft over the last uh, many years. I mean, it's Calgary has the most players selected. I mean, if you're a university coach and you're trying to recruit a player, Wayne Harris, all he has to do is say, we've got a program, we'll make you a pro, and if you don't believe me, Here's the CFL guide. Take a look. So, we produce players, so there you are. And he can show them to the wall just outside of the locker room. That it still has yet to be updated in the last few years, I think, since 2014 or 15. But there's uh, definitely a an, an insane slew of players that have represented the Dinos at the professional level. No question. Yeah, as I say, it's a it's a great honor to watch them play uh, in their various centers for sure. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for having been on today's episode. It was great to chat CFL football with you and to get to recap week one of the 2022 CFL season. Well, by all means, thank you for asking. Uh, Glad we're able to hook up together here, and uh, hopefully we can do it again. And thank you to the listener for enjoying today's episode with the play-by-play voice of the Calgary Stampeders, Mark Steven. First and goal from the one. This is it, Steven! Thanks for listening to today's episode of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Check out our social media pages for more at huddleup underscore MB. For full audio, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For full video, head over to YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Tune in next week for another great episode. See you next time.